Welcome to 2023 and the Top Order podcast. We've got it all coming to you this evening. New Zealand, Pakistan, Australia, South Africa. A bit of Super Smash, a bit of Big Bash, all coming up on the Top Order podcast. Stay tuned. Well, boys, I hope Santa has been kind to all of you. Lots of gifts under the tree and prosperous New Year's and all of that. We've certainly had a prosperous New Year in terms of cricketing content to watch. Test series, New Zealand, Pakistan, not without a few talking points. We've obviously also got Australia, South Africa. The Australian juggernaut at home goes on. It looks very difficult to beat Australia in Australia. And then we've got a whole heap of white ball cricket on. I can't even keep count of the amount of leagues that are going on simultaneously at the moment. You've got Andre Russell flying left, right and centre to play in seems about 16 different competitions all at the same time. But we'll talk a little bit of Super Smash domestically in New Zealand and the BBL as well. But we've got to start, I think, with the New Zealand-Pakistan series. Lots and lots of talking points. I guess I'll come to the two Kiwi boys first, just your impressions of the series and I, I guess what you know what you're thinking about um about the test matches that you've just witnessed i i'm really keen maybe i'll, I'll go to you raj seeing as uh, we're not going to throw right back to Brinksy, we give Brinksy some credit we're having bits off the air about whether he would nail the intro and he did so well, well done good start to, to 2023 there but i'm kind of interested if you actually enjoyed watching the series because when we go when we think about that series that happened beforehand and just the rave reviews that that series got because of the exciting cricket, baseball, we've gone into baseball many, many times on this podcast and kind of how it's changed test cricket. But does that make then this series that we just saw, which was a very attritional series. I mean, we did come to day five and kind of the last session of all of those series or, or both those two tests with games on the line and things to fight for. So that, those parts were quite interesting. But did you find the whole series interesting? Uh, I did. I did. Maybe that's because I like watching people bat and bat long <laughs> periods of time and put together partnerships, put together innings, uh, and just watch it flow all the way through. I, I really enjoyed watching both sides bat much more than, say, perhaps, uh, you know, maybe if we're talking about the Australian South Africa series, that mm. was a lot more ball-dominating bat at times uh, there as well. So I enjoyed I enjoy watching people bat long periods of time, and I really liked watching a New Zealand side specifically go away mm. and actually score runs and do well with the bat, apply themselves and uh, score runs. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when, yeah, when when I, I'm sort of the same, but for different reasons, I love watching spinners bowl long long spells and that's kind of what we got. I, I do think the, the, there's bigger questions about what's going on in Pakistan with these pitches. I mean, I, I don't think this can really continue, surely, can it? I mean... They, they make for, I, I know that we enjoy them, but it's a it's an entertainment product, right, Test Cricket? And it's it's competing, as you say, against so many different cricket leagues. And there are parts of those Test matches where things are just plodding along. And, I mean, Saad Shaquille, he looked like he could bat for all five days without playing a shot. As, you know, he played a few shots at, at times and got himself out in a couple of occasions. But, you know, someone like him, Kane Williamson as well, someone that can just apply themselves... They look like they can bat forever on those pitches, and even you get to day five, and there's sort of nothing. There's nothing even in it really then for a spinner or you know someone to really take charge. There's no turn from ball to bat or bat to ball. You know if you know what I mean. I do think it, it's interesting we talk about this because we, we don't want to see two day tests, mm. but then when we see a five day <laughs> test, and look, 
in each of those series, the Australia series, uh, sorry, the England series before, and then the New Zealand series in Pakistan, there was at least one game in each of those series that went down to, you know, right to the wire. I think the England won by 27 runs yep. in the second test. And an absolute beauty of a game was taken away from us uh, in that second test, the New Zealand one. That's why you watch test cricket to see those, you know, tight games where, you know, when at the start of the day, you start the day and all three results are in play. And usually that happens, you know, after the first session, it's probably leaning one way and it probably teeters out, mm. uh, peters out towards that one side. But that wasn't the case with these. And every now and then you have a test that it just keeps going on that final day, going one way than the others. Like the Sydney series, right? The Sorry, the Sydney test, the India-Australia yeah, yeah, yeah. one that we keep going back to. And there was also a really good one, uh, New Zealand-England at Eden Park. Mm. Those tests are the ones that you actually watch test cricket for. So I'm really... Even though these pitches seem a bit benign, I don't think that we should be complaining about them. They've gone five days. The advertisers have got what they wanted out of the test, and we had a, the advertisers we, have had a great time on that we, series. We'll come, we'll come on to the Tapal T moment, I'm sure. We had the potential to see two absolute beauties, and we saw one, and one got taken away from us. But that wasn't due to the players. Yeah, Binksy and I talked about this. We were at the Super Smash game on Sunday and had a bit of a chat. Uh, yeah, you might want to elaborate, Binksy, about this you know, bad light situation and the ICC. Because, you know, I'm, you know we, we touched on it a little bit there. It's an entertainment product and we've got to the absolute peak of the game and the umpires are forced to walk off the field because a light meter says, you know, that they have to. I mean, is, is like, is Test Cricket shooting itself in the foot? Surely it is here. Look, I, I think we're obviously going to pivot and have to talk about the rules and the regulations and when common sense prevails and, and, and all of those kind of comments that we've heard a hell of a lot over the course of our lifetimes when it, when it comes to, to test cricket. I, I think if I talk about the series more generally first, I, I think we if we compare it to that England-Pakistan series, look, I don't think that's fair. That You know, that is at one end of the spectrum in terms of a team doing something that's not really been done before to, to try and manufacture time. We talked a little bit about this at the Super Smash. I think, you know, arguably at a point in that second game, Kane and I think Tom Latham were going pretty well. And if they'd have even just increased the scoring rate by a run and over for, for a session, it would have bought you another 20 minutes, half an hour in the game, um, a few more runs. But yeah, look, I think at the end of that, the, the bit that I, I, I've di I disagree with in terms of that light meter conversation at the end of the game is a lot of people talking about, well, once the spinners come on, because that's what you've agreed, you've agreed to bowl spin so that you don't have to come off, mm -hmm. then you then... At the moment, you the minute you then bring a seamer back on, it's game over. And I think the field inside have got to have the right to do that. They can't just be expected to continue with spin until the end. Um, that you know they have to have the right to you know potentially um, bowl whoever they want to bowl. And that then comes round to whether or not we do need to look at options to actually get the captains to agree as to what they want to do. Um, I'd still like to be a fly on the wall in those particular discussions. Both sides, been, we talked about this said afterwards. fascinating to know what Baba would have done. They both wanted to carry on and get to a result. I'm I, not so sure yeah. they did, if, if I'm being brutally honest. But then it comes into whether or not we need to look at pink balls. Um, how then do you govern that? Because we know that that's a different, uh, a completely different proposition to a red cricket ball. Uh, and then obviously that you know, there is an element of safety that we've got to consider. So it's really, really difficult, but the game hasn't done itself a, fa a favour in that particular circumstance to get a result. Was, was there a bad light in any other part of the test? Because isn't it the, 
isn't the rule something along the lines of you you put a line in the sand? This is the amount of light we're going to have that, before we go off. That was a light meter reading, yes. Yeah, so yeah. From earlier in the test, yes. So they had they had no choice really. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's no, there's no fault in the umpires. I don't think they are to blame at all. I mean, yeah, like like I said, there's a there's a figure that comes up on the um, and I think it happened. Alim Dar said, you know, we're, we're down to the one that says you can only bowl spin now, and uh, and then after a while he said, look. This has got to this number that we that means we have to go off and yeah, I, like you say, it would have been fascinating to find out what Barbara Barbara Azam would have actually done. I think you know based on what he did by that declaration that was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in the first test. I think he was he's obviously feeling some pressure off the back of that England series to play well. You could say he feels some pressure to play attacking cricket, but then you actually look at what happened and they didn't play especially attacking cricket in that that series. So, yeah, very bizarre circumstance and it would have been kind of fascinating to find out what he would have done. You guys talked about their, uh, the you know, intent and uh, mentioned, you know, Kane going, going a little bit further. You know, Kane could have put the foot down a little bit at times. I think we should now talk about the cricket and um, look, I could probably talk for, for ages about this final session and particularly in that second test. Uh, yeah. I, I have big questions about kind of what happened there, but how are you feeling Raj about how we played cricket? Because I think when we, when the press release came out about Tim Southey's captaincy, one of the things they one of the lines that Gary Stead said, it, it did mention the way we want to play cricket and that Tim Southey was the right choice there for, for that reason. I don't think it's fair to evaluate Tim Southey's captaincy on one series, two tests. Uh, but just in general, how did you feel we we played the brand of cricket? Uh, I, I liked it. I think it was a little bit more on the attacking side, uh, which I like. Again, hard to tell what it would have been. This is not how New Zealand usually play their cricket with three spinners in the side. Mm. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how they go in you know, England or somewhere or South Africa with a faster sort of track. But I liked the way that they, they were aggressive and they stuck to their guns. They had a game plan and, and they went for it. I really like, just stepping away from the captaincy shortly, uh, sorry, for a little, just for a second, I really liked the way that we applied ourselves in with both the bat and the ball mm. uh, throughout the whole series. Uh, we're going to come to highlights and lowlights. There's plenty of them for the New Zealand side. I I will counter that. I I sort of tend to agree it, to some degree, uh, based on kind of all the series except for that last session. That last session just kind of absolutely blow, blew my mind. Binksy, you talked about um, just before about how we could have gone a bit further, you know, sped up the game, got more time. I actually think that target proved to be almost exactly right in terms of both runs, wickets, time. I don't think time was our issue. I don't think time was a problem in the slightest. We had chances to win that game. The issue for, for me was that we got Saud Shaquille out. There's about, there's Pakistan had 100 runs to get, and we suddenly decided, you know, uh, Safras had a couple of boundaries, and we went, we can't win anymore. And I have absolutely no, like, it's the most baffling cricket that I've ever seen in my life where we've, we're on top of the game, and suddenly we've got Ajaz Patel coming on, bowling a metre outside leg stump. And I, can can you explain this to me? Because I've just been thinking about this for since it happened and I still just cannot fathom why they would do that. Yeah, and look, for me, and we, we, we talked about it, that's the contrast between that England series, Ben Stokes. And look, 
let me just digress very, very slightly. I remember um, the Ashes series 2005 when we were talking about Michael Vaughan's captaincy and everyone said it was brilliant um, throughout that course of that series. But there was a moment in that Edgebaston test match which really went down to the wire where I, I had a mate who was at the ground and he swears blind that Vaughan just didn't know what was going on and where the fielders were. And when Brett Lee hit that ball out, to, I think it was Ashley Giles on the boundary, he wasn't meant to be there. He'd got that completely wrong in terms of his field placing and his tactics. And if we come back to that series, Ben Stokes was willing to keep his men up, whether or not that was deliberate. You know, Jack Leach often got hit over the top or swept and, you know, said, oh, can I have a sweeper out or can I have a long on out now? And, and Stokes was like, no, we keep the guys up. That for me was probably one of the things that I'd say from a tactical perspective. I don't think you tried enough things with the ball. You very much went in with some uh, sort of, it was almost like a halfway between a traditional approach and a, a slightly funky approach. Mm. At no stage did you go, do you know what? It's not going to get to slip. Let's set two mid wickets and two catching covers you kind of had a bob each way and went well we've got to have a slip in a gully because it's a test match and we've and the ball's 10 overs old you, you i don't think you did enough with the with the fielding tactics for me was was probably one of the components um just from the the parts of the the, the game that i saw yeah, I, th- I think the way they played the selections they made as a as a unit as a selection panel were aggressive they were going to go after the game that's why that's why we wanted to bowl last for example mm. um i have an issue with that last session in that we tried to play that draw first cricket, which we yeah. we've which yeah. we, which which we have you know talked about when England played that draw first cricket and we didn't like it. We tried to do the same thing and we didn't want to lose that game. We wanted to make sure that we had those runs in the bank and if we we could go again, maybe in the last five overs. Uh, but we should have just backed ourselves to to get it done in the last uh, last session of day five. Absolutely, I just can't understand why we didn't because we were completely on top of that game. I mean that part, Shaquille and Safraz. I mean, we've got to give massive credit to Safraz. What a comeback! Played really well. Didn't you know? didn't especially keep that well and maybe now might be in line for you know a spot as a batsman because he he played incredibly well throughout that series you know scored runs was able to play the kind of innings where you can bat for long periods of time but also bat at a reasonable strike rate and advance the game but yeah I just I just don't understand why they went from that mode because I think what that England series showed me the most is that actually if you attack and play positive cricket opportunities to win come and that's what like opportunities came to New Zealand in those in both tests. They could have won both of those tests, I think, quite easily if they'd just shown a bit more. I don't mean I don't need more intent in run scoring. I don't need more intent in you know even necessarily the the bowling changes. Just backing themselves to win that game, and I, and I just I don't think they I don't think they did that. And and uh, yeah, I feel like that was really disappointing aspect of that series. I feel like it's very hard to compare the way England are playing cricket at the moment to to this. Mm. You know, it's just like comparing apples and oranges. I mean, if, if that game had gone three more overs and they'd scored 11 more runs, it would have been the exact same result, but it would have been a, one of the greatest tests that we've ever seen. And, and, I, and I don't think, I'm, like, I'm not advocating New Zealand play England style. I think I was actually pleasantly surprised that we didn't try and do that. We pl- tried to play the style of cricket that I think suits us. Mm. We we have batters like Latham and Williamson that can bat along long periods of time, apply themselves, get big lead, you know, try and get big first innings leads, and then put the pressure on with our, you know, steady bowling. We did miss a, you know, perhaps we missed someone like a Mark Wood, you know, all of that kind of stuff, but we don't have those players. I, Jeremy Coney was talking on commentary. I listened to quite a bit of it on uh, SCNZ Radio. Much, I mean, hands down, 
you know, streets ahead of the commentary that was on TV and asked, asked lots of sort of good questions around, you know, the New Zealand side that we might get to a little bit later. But he was talking about Lockie and, you know, whether we could, in an environment like that, bring Lockie Ferguson into our side, you know, if he can get through 10 overs in a one-dayer, how about they try and push him for 12 overs in a in a game like that where they can have, he can bowl three, over, three four-over spells or something like that. But I just don't think that's especially realistic because one... Lockie, unfortunately, just hasn't been bowling that well over the past 12 months, as much as I would love him to be. And I think, you know, there's still an option for him to be a, an extremely important match winner for New Zealand and, and the white ball stuff. But he just has, hasn't played first-class cricket. For, I, I think it's since 2019 or something. He just, he's been focusing on one, one white ball cricket. And actually, I, I just don't think those, I, I don't think a test match is in his plans or in New Zealand's plans at the moment. And yeah, look... When that when that comes up, it's not really an option we had, and you don't find, you know, Lockie Ferguson's, Mark Woods. Unfortunately, there's not that many of them in New Zealand. You look through the uh, ODI list. Matt Henry got injured in this game, bowled into the ground, bowled incredibly well, I thought actually, but you know, bowled into the ground for for no real purpose. But then is out of this one day series. You look through the list of people who are unavailable: Adam Milne, Ben Sears. They're the quick options that you know you would bring in, but they're all injured. So yeah, these guys just don't don't grow on trees. Let's move on. Um, succession plans. So you, you've noted this down. Um, players in that sort of thirty plus category. You know, do we predict a bit of a lean run f- for New Zealand if some of those guys do all retire at the same time? Well, that yeah, that was another. So the SENZ radio commentary team they. Uh, there was a couple of them on there that were talking. One of them, one of them, Garth Galloway, was very critical of New Zealand's uh, the way that New Zealand have gone about this. You know, we've had a very successful run. Obviously, won the World Test Championship. Have had a you know pretty average last twelve months, certainly in, in uh, Red Bull cricket. And all our players, I think every single player that got on the park in that series is over thirty. You look through, there's, you know, even that entire squad, there's not a lot of uh, younger players. Phillips is over there. But really, does that mean that once this crop goes, you know, what's what's left for New Zealand? Are we going to be a side that, you know, has to really struggle for a long time? Has, has this, you know, coaching staff, has this selection panel, have they set, up, set us up for failure in two years' time where, yeah, Kane Williamson, Tate, Tom Latham, Devin Conway, all these guys go... Saudi Bolt is obviously we've obviously seen Bolt go potentially from from Test cricket. Yeah, what do you think, Raj? I mean, are we set for a, a lean time in a couple of years' time? I think I think it's an exceptionally hard question to answer. Mm. Um, I was I was thinking about this today, and I was thinking back to um, you know I like talking about the Australians, right? So maybe we can bring Baldy in here, but <laughs> yeah, he's been very quiet. He's very quiet. Um, I was thinking back to. Steve Smith, right? He was able to make that Australian side, a very good Australian side, as a spin bowler who batted, what, six, seven. And now he's, you know, oh, eight, Baldy's holding his fingers. I think that maybe he just really doesn't like me. Um, <laughs> the uh, Yeah, he was able to make that side as a spin bowler who couldn't bat. And now he's probably one of the best batsmen of our era, if not the best mm. batsman in, in our era. And uh, I just I think it's very hard to go, somebody doesn't have the skills right now and just sort of write them off. One, one really good example actually from New Zealand is I remember watching Tom Latham in the Under-19 World Cup. 
Uh, he could barely get the ball off the block, I felt. He was really struggling to score runs. And now he's turned into not only a great test batsman, but also a really good limited overs player. Yeah, jeez, he's looks unbelievable form at the moment. The likes of uh, Glenn Phillips, who you've mentioned, those are the guys who are going to actually be part of our red ball side when it when in five, ten years' time. Mm. Finn Allen is still a very young fella, and the way that test cricket is going, we don't know what it could look like in ten years' time. Mm-hmm. They're going to be four-day, 98 overs a day <laughs> sort of affairs. And, uh, you know, you need to score runs then, and scoring at four, five runs and over might be the norm then. We don't know uh, if baseball kicks on. Um, yeah. You'd be so playing with one of those red and white balls, just hedge your back. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And, and with the um, bowlers, I think it's also very hard to sort of, unless you've got that real out-and-out quick who's young who's coming in then you've got an idea you can see them coming in Cameron Green's a great great example that he is someone who was test match ready at a very young age mm. I don't think there's many people that are test match ready at a young age don't forget you've got Kyle Jamison to come back into this side as well and mm-hmm. he's going to be a guy that I think barring injury will lead New Zealand's attack for maybe as many as 10 years to come you know, how old is he now? 20, he's 28. 20, so he's okay, so he's a little bit older than to I think thought, he'll play for 10 years. But okay. yes. So oh, I thought he was 26. So yep. that was, you know, yep. a little bit exaggerated. But, you know, you've got Kyle Jamison. You've Ruchin got Ravindra. Ravindra. You've got Ravindra. Uh, how old's Michael Bracewell? Is he over 30 now he's as well? Over 30 okay, as well, fair yeah. enough. Uh, so you do have a lot of young talent in New Zealand. They just haven't been given much of a run, such as the quality of the New Zealand side that you've got at the moment. Don't forget, you're comparing what might be in three years' time the fifth or sixth best test side in the world to a test side that as of 12 months ago was the best test side in the world and had a trophy uh, to prove it. So, you know, there are going to be some high lofty standards that if you don't meet them in 12 months, members of the media, harsh critics of the New Zealand side will say, well, this team is not as good as the one that's gone before it. But the team that you've got now and the one that you've had for the last four or five years has almost without doubt been the greatest test side that New Zealand has ever assembled. And I don't think there's any argument with that. So, And you've had in the last five or six years Ross Taylor and Kane Williamson, two of, if not the two best batters of New Zealand's history, two out of the top four at least. So, you know, there's, there's going to be a, a coming down period off that off the top of that mountain that New Zealand fans are, are unfortunately going to have to accept for a little while while Ravindra and Jamison grow into the roles that they're going to be that they're going to be stepping into. I, I think the other factor is rarely do you see all of those um, retirements come all at once. I think I can remember once in my you know cricketing history, and that was that Australian side after that. I think oh six oh seven Ashes where you saw Langer, Hayden, Warren. I think Gilchrist or, and McGrath all uh, retired all within within at the same years, time. In a couple of years but, of each other, yeah. You know, you talk about England. We've been going on about Broad and Anderson retiring for about the five or six years, and that hasn't happened. Mm. Um, I think you've got the likes of Devin Conway, who's obviously relatively early in his international career despite his age. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think you'll see that kind of staggered. So I think it's, for me, more around whether the likes of a Glenn Phillips comes in and, and actually takes his chance. Uh, whether Jameson comes in and really leads the attack uh, well. We've not talked about Blundell. I I just want to go and say how well, A, he kept, and B, when I kind of was, you know, four or five gin and tonics in and watching one of these games, I kind of clicked on and looked at his average, and I was like, holy shit, the guy's averaged 60 this year, and his test match batting average is above 40. 18 months ago, we were saying, who on earth is going to replace BJ Watling? So... Mm -hmm. Um, I just use we there. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. The, um, I did look at my New Zealand passport this morning briefly as I put it away in a drawer. But no, that that's uh, yeah. Look, uh, what, 
Absolutely. You, you, I think you've got it. The, the, the embryo of the next generation of this side, it might be a little bit of a leaner uh, period for, for maybe 18 months or so, but I think you'll come again. What do you think, Lippy? You've asked the questions to tonight, and then follow us up with your performances of this series. Well, I, I'm much the same as you guys, actually. I, I think it's a very valid conversation because you look at the side that we've had for the last three or four years, and it's been very similar. You know, every I, th- I think that consistency of selection has been something that has given New Zealand. It's been a real plus for New Zealand. It's made it. It's meant that everyone kind of got to know their roles. They knew exactly what they were doing. We had a, a system that worked for us. Much criticised that we didn't really ever use spin effectively. But look, we had four seamers. Well, you know, start with we had three, and then Jameson emerged on the scene. We had four seamers. That system worked for us. It, it got us to the World Test Championship. Won us the World Test Championship. And now we've we've kind of had to we've had a couple of guys go and suddenly we've thought it, although actually the guys that have gone in Watling and Taylor as much as they you know have had incredible careers by the time that they left I don't think they were contributing at a level you know you just talked about Blundell as you say didn't miss a chance in 2022 averaged 60 with the bat so it's not like we're missing BJ Watling because of those reasons. I think, you know, you, you probably look at all of those games, you know, all of 2022 almost, and think New Zealand was in 20, when we won, when we were on that winning streak, we were taking the opportunities. We were getting close. We were playing all of those games right to the end. We were putting ourselves in winning chances and we were winning them. Now what's happening is we're getting in those situations and we're not winning them. We're just not, you know, we're like 5% off and we're not winning those games. That's what happened on that entire England series, kind of until the third test where it just felt like we were mentally gone in, in that final innings. It happened you know, in both of these tests. I think we had enough chances to win. So I, I think the challenging thing for New Zealand is that we don't... Like People talk about succession plan and blooding new players in. We kind of did do that with Rutch and Ravindra, and we're certainly doing it with our uh, white ball stuff. You know, you look look at the likes of Finnell and who you mentioned, Phillips. Those guys are taking on much bigger roles now. We've brought in players like Henry Shipley, who's in over you know in the series now. Younger players are coming into those squads, but we don't play enough tests. I don't see how you can really give a guy a test opportunity when you know. I mean, Blundell. I mentioned. I'm pretty sure he's played every test. We played nine tests last year. So, you know, what what are you supposed to do? And I, and I think you're you're. A, the way you talked about with Green, that example of Cameron Green, is a great example because that's the ideal, right? You bring in, that's sort of what New Zealand tried to do with Ratchin Ravindra. Bring him in, bat him at seven, kind of give him bit part roles in the in the side. You know, say you're going to, you know, we don't think you're quite ready to, to be the opener, which I'm sure they must be thinking, especially with his form now. He's in great, you know, seems to be really, really stepping up now after that experience, hopefully has learnt a lot from that and now is stepping up. And, yeah, you know, you guys mentioned a few of the names before. I, I, I think there's a lot of talent in that New Zealand domestic scene. You know, the guys we've just mentioned, there's other guys sort of a couple of years younger, like Chapman and, and Phillips and, um, you know, even someone like Jacob Duffy who's been in the system a long time but is actually only like 28 or 29. You know, there, and there are a lot of younger players that, that are coming through that people have high hopes for. So, yeah, I'm I'm not as pessimistic as certainly that commentary team was was talking about, but I do think it's a really valid conversation because you you know yeah, a couple of those guys do decide to go. If Kane said tomorrow that he was ready to go, you'd probably put Will Young in and and you'd move on to you know and maybe you'd still be okay. But yeah, I, 
in a couple of years, we are going to have to start replacing some of those guys. And and the matter, the the big question is how are they going to develop those players when you really just have to keep picking your best mm. eleven. I don't see how you don't pick your best eleven to blood someone in even in a situation where you know, New Zealand is out of this World Test Championship. I, I still want us to pick our best side against England and try and give them the best opportunity they have. Do you think that there is a spectre hanging over it? This is a, coming from a different angle here, an administration angle, with the whole contracting saga as well. Do you think that there could be some implications? Like, for example, Glenn Phillips, right? He loves playing for New Zealand, mm. but he may not have got the opportunities he feels he deserves at certain parts. What's stopping him going and playing 2020 cricket or doing the same thing that, that Trent Bolt has done, for example? Well, there's nothing stopping him and, and, and it's, unless he wants to play, you know, unless he, it, it's really up to him, isn't it? Mm. If, he, if he values playing test cricket over all of those other leagues, that's all you've really got, you know, to, to entice him to say this is what we want you to do and I, I have no doubt that pe- that's why people are starting to feel that way because they look at Bolt and they look and say he's still one of the best bowlers in the world and he's someone who's chosen to say you know I, I've you know for a number of different reasons I'm sure family is is a big part of it that's what he's talked about you know financially as well he can do just as well playing if not better probably playing all these leagues and just having to play a short amount of time He's, you know, he's chosen that over Jimmy Anderson and trying to, you know, play Test cricket for as long time. But even the Jimmy Anderson example, Anderson just plays Tests, right? He doesn't play all of those limited over one stuff day since twenty fifteen. Yeah, mm. I, I think in a in a strange way that, that the question around playing the best eleven or that almost the T twenty and the proliferation of T twenty leagues is actually going to mean you rarely get your best eleven. Mm on the pitch and that's actually going to create opportunities for those guys that might ordinarily have had to kick their heels so yes then you've got a question around the strength of your domestic game and getting players ready for that but you've got a guy that has to step up like Cameron Green's done in test match cricket for Australia Um, I know it's a white ball example but someone like a Tim David who has literally only played franchise cricket and then all of a sudden is able to translate that into the Australian white ball side with some success and he's got to learn on the biggest stage it might be that some of those guys like Ratchin um, Blundell to an extent are actually come in probably without that you know first class cricket uh, of a high, really really high quality behind them mm-hmm. and they're able to deliver on on the international stage Devin Conway I know he had a slightly different journey but double hundred on debut and then has pulled up tree since he's come into the international side mm-hmm. um, so I almost think in a way not having the ability to play your best 11 because two of them are buggered off to play the Caribbean Premier League might actually help you get a squad of 13, 14, 15 guys that can, can do the job. Yeah, well, it certainly helped in the in the white ball stuff. Look, I've done heaps of talking. Raj, why don't, why don't you throw out a few performances that you want to talk about? We've, we've talk, mentioned Safaraz, we mentioned Blundell as well. Anyone else you really want to highlight from, from what they did in this series? Uh the first one I want to talk about is uh, Ish mm. Sodi. I, I really like the way that he came back into this uh, red ball side, and he, he bowled aggressively. He, he didn't he didn't sit there and just put it outside off or whatever. He bowled for wickets, and I really liked the way he bowled. And uh, he was our number one spinner in, in terms of results this this way through uh, this uh, for this series. Sorry, so I really liked the way that he bowled throughout the whole series. Uh, the other one for me is, is Williamson, and. and 
with Williamson, obviously it's great to see him scoring runs, but for me it's time at the crease. Mm. I think that he's really struggled for that um, over the last 18 months or so, but just having the ability to bat uh, for long periods of time is going gonna, gonna to help us all the way through. It's probably going to help uh, if he ends up somewhere at the IPL as well. Crystal Ball, what, what do you think we do, and this could be completely uh, irrelevant when we decide to play four, spin- uh, four seamers anyway against England, which spinner is now in that squad? And and uh, for for the England series because we won't have two spinners, two specialist spinners. I'm sure Michael Bracewell, although he was possibly under a bit of pressure after the first test, but sort of bounced back. Thought he actually bowled probably his best bowling performance ever for New Zealand tests in that last test. Thought he bowled you know really well and kind of you know showed a lot of really positive signs. Was actually actually showed that he had the most control. It's certainly in that second test. I don't think that's been. Uh, consistent between him and Ajaz throughout throughout their careers, but yeah, certainly in that second test showed a lot of positive signs. Also looked absolutely terrible until he got to about 30, 35 in, in, uh, in the uh, batting innings where he got 74, but look, he's put those figures on the board now. I'm sure he'll be in that squad. But Sodi and, and Patel is, I think, a, a fascinating question now because two, two games ago, Ajaz Patel was our number one spinner, no question. Now, he's actually been out bowled. Southie showed very little faith in Ajaz, I think, in this series. Four innings, he didn't. He bowled, what, seven overs or something? Hardly he? bowled at all and bowled those overs. Um, you know, when he did bowl, he bowled those overs into the rough. And and, and the, the the actual question or the answer to your question starts with, how do you think we are going to beat England? Are we going to beat England with a spinner that will attempt to hold up one end to the bat, to the likes of, of Bearstow and, and, and company. Or oh, is he even coming, Bearstow? Nah, Bearstow's not to make the plane, but yeah. The, the, other, the other hitter, who, who is going to be able to Brooks. hold up those batsmen? Yeah. I, I actually don't think that's probably very likely to be the plan A. Mm. Um, I, I think you're more likely to see the best batsman in New Zealand, the best batsman of those spinners play, play as a, our spinning role. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, yeah, I agree. I, th- I think my, it'll it'll end up being Michael Bracewell, but I think it'll be a fascinating question to actually just see who they pick in that squad because only one of Ajaz and, and Ish, I think, will make it. And it it would I th- I feel like it would be a big kick in the teeth if Ajaz, you know, after two games is suddenly not in that squad. But you know, I, I think he did get out bowled, and and yeah, absolutely, yeah. Like I said, fascinating to kind of see what happens there. Just jumping in here, Stu, if you're if you're looking at the blueprint to beat England, even in New Zealand, you've got to you've got to be prepared to go for runs because England will attack you if you're a spinner or even if you're a seamer, it doesn't matter. So what's the strategy then to beat England? Is it to try and restrict that damage or is it to try and be prepared to go for four and a half and over? Concede that your four spinner and a half, you'll be doing well. Well, whatever. That you'll concede a boundary ball and over effectively. But in that in that six deliveries, you're going to take a wicket-taking delivery. Is that the answer? To, is that the strategy? Is that the tactic to try and take wickets against England if you're a spinner? I think that's the question. That's a huge question. But I actually think, in a weird way, no matter which spinner they pick, England will give them chances yep. because of the way they're they're playing. And even you know, just by bowling accurately, you'll probably in some ways get get more chances maybe you don't have to you know you're not going to be on pitches that where you can just run in and bowl magic deliveries and and kind of dismiss people we're going to be on pitches here in New Zealand I would I would be stunned if we're not just on the regular New Zealand pitches Mm. that you know more often than not suit 
seamers more than they do spinners, even though the mount, you know, has probably one of the more spin-friendly tracks in New Zealand. Yeah, it's going to be interesting when we do our preview for that series because I don't think that we can afford to have really good batting t- batting tracks when we play England. I think they need to have to offer something to our seam bowlers, which is our strength, and put it on our batsmen to, to, to beat the English bat bowlers. That's how we have to play it, I think. Well, as you mentioned, Raj, we'll do a preview yeah. of that series as we... Um, come up my, my view is just let England beat themselves guys you know it can't go on forever and let's hear a little bit more from from Baldy we've not heard much from him on this podcast some real worries for Australia's lower order Baldy they just haven't been able to get a bat in this series um, <laughs> it's the only negative I can think of dominant performance in the Boxing Day test match winning by 182 runs and you've got to say but for Sydney's ridiculously poor weather you mm. were in the box seats um to win that game as well you must be pretty happy with the series against south africa oh look a faultless summer for australia really if you have a look at it top to bottom i think travis head was the only batter that didn't get a double ton in the in the top five and he got 175 his best test score kawaja oh sorry kawaja got 195 not yeah, out and got de- and got declared on so te- technically he also didn't get a double ton uh, but I'll, I'll give him i'll give him 200 in the in this in the you know selector scorecard um australia were excellent the top five were fantastic i actually think travis head was probably the best of the australian batters given that okay yes it is easy when it's two for 400 to come in and smash it about <laughs> but but in fairness he he did a job that has got him on the plane to india and has potentially got himself a spot opening the batting. We'll get to the India series and when we preview that, and I'll, I'll throw my left field selection idea at you when we get to that. But Travis Head was outstanding. Um, he capitalised on all the good work that the Australian batsmen did throughout the summer. I guess if you were to be critical of that Australian top five, minus Labuschagne only averaged, what, 36 against South Africa, so against a good bowling attack, came back to earth a little bit. If only one of us in the podcast had suggested that that might be the case, um, that person should get credit um, for that. But look, from a batting perspective, Australia were fantastic. Um, Alex Carey behind the stumps had much improved from his performance 12 months ago, a lot more assured with the gloves, has now got a test 100 to his name. He looks inked in to be Australia's wicketkeeper for a long time to come. So, so from a batting perspective, outstanding. Um we even got we even got a great performance from Cameron Green with the ball five for twenty seven this summer as well uh, fifty one not out with a severely broken finger which just show, goes to show that he has a little bit of metal as well he, he's a he's a fantastic player but also has a bit well, of actually does that he's got yeah. a screw in it yeah yeah um, well done uh, no, <laughs> no pun intended but I'll take it but then then you have a look at the Australian bowling and the Australian bowling has if if it hasn't gone from strength to strength I'll I'll be quite surprised because now there is a genuine conversation as to whether you pick Scott Boland ahead of Josh Hazelwood going forward for the Australian Test team in in every match. And I know that some people will be going, well, you have to pick Scott Boland because he averages 12. But when you saw Josh Hazelwood bowl in that Sydney Test, he was outstanding. He'd got the double breakthrough. He looked like he was going to trouble the batsman every time. He's probably Australia's best white ball bowler now, Josh Hazelwood, um, certainly in the T20 format. So there's, there's really you, – you would be really nitpicking if you were to pick a floor in this Australian side this summer. The only one I could think of is that, you know, Ashton Agar in his audition to go to India – Bowled 22 overs without really looking like like taking a wicket, um, even though that pitch was a reasonably good batting track for the for the period of time that he was bowling. Uh, in, in in thinking that, uh, I also want you to give me your 
I want you to tell me the one to five rankings of your top five, who you think the best is to the worst. But we'll come back to that. We'll okay. come back to that. I'll have to think of that. From, from, from a spin perspective, mm-hmm. do you think that they will take a second spinner or they'll use the likes of Labashane or Smith, which they did use, Travis kind Head. of, or Travis Head in yep. that kind of... I think they'll use one of the top order, would they not? I think Australia will take two, at least two, if not three genuine frontline spinners to India, if we're talking about the India series, and then they will have backup from first Travis Head and then Smith or Labashain to bowl some dirty leg breaks uh, if necessary. I, I think Travis Head's off breaks are underrated, and I think Australia's thinking going to India will be that finger spin has, over the last 24 to 36 months, been a lot more dominant, Ish Sodi notwithstanding, um, has been a lot more dominant and a lot more penetrative than than leg uh, than than wrist spin in India. So I think Australia will pick Nathan Lyon, no problem. I think they'll consider Ashton Agar. They will consider Stephen O'Keefe. They will consider uh, Todd Murphy or Troy Murphy. I can't remember his first name. Todd Murphy. Todd Murphy. T Murphy. And so they'll consider those three, and then it will be a case of, well, do they do they go back to the well with Mitchell Swipson? Do they go for yeah, someone like Swipson. Matthew Kuhneman, who's been bowling well for Queensland? I don't think they will. I think they'll pick they'll pick Lyon and Agar. They might pick a third spinner, in which case they'll probably take Swipson. Murphy as a development player, and then they will rely on the finger spin of head and then some dirty leg breaks from So, so does Stark and, uh, or Hazelwood miss out then in that? Line up for you. Uh, I it personally, I would pick Stark because of his ability to bowl swing early doors and potentially reverse swing the ball when it gets and, old. And footmarks for and, and footmarks for the spinners. Yep, absolutely. Because he does a great job with the footmarks somehow. I don't know how he does it. He must have forty five spikes on each bowling shoe. Mate, he's, got he, bit, he's got big feet and he lands heavily. Yeah, fair enough. Hazelwood yeah. has bowled very well in India over the last couple. He of years. has. You, you can't fault his performances in the IPL in particular. He's Give us your top five. Top five. Travis Head was was my find of the summer for me. He is the perfect number five for Australia and he could be a smoky dark horse to open the batting in India. You heard it here second because it was on Fox Sports the other day. Um, (laughs) Kawaja. Kawaja was excellent opening the batting all summer. Even though he had a a string of low scores, I thought he was just fantastic. Uh, Smith. Third, he's the best of the batters, but his performance is sort of ranked third for me. And then Warner and then Manus fifth. Interesting. So on that logic, are you saying there's a chance that Warner's not on the plane to India? I know Warner will go. I think what they will do is they will bat one of Warner and Kawaja down the order a little bit. So they'll switch up the order. Travis Head is not a great player of spin. Traditionally, he's a much better player of pace bowling, which we saw in that in that series and in the West Indies series. He flayed pace bowling. Doesn't have a great average in India. I think the best option for him is to open the batting and smash the fast bowling when the ball is new. And then Kawaja is a much better player of spin down the order because he's proven himself to be that in India, um, even though he was doing that opening the batting and, and has done really well. Kawaja's never played in India. The, the he, floor, oh, sorry, Pakistan. But he averages 165 in Pakistan. Yeah, sorry. I think the Pakistan pitches and the Indian pitches from the two tours that New Zealand have been on very different. incredibly different. Yeah, very different. Very yeah. different. So and I'm not sure that those two those stats are especially relevant. And I think the flaw in that plan really with is that, you know, Akshar Patel was on in like the fifth over in some of those games. So, you know, if so you're, trying, got, to, so if you're got, trying to throw so he's Travis got a power play, there. He's got a power play. He's got four <laughs> overs to do as much damage as he can. I actually reckon that's a really good point because talk, just going back to the series, the last test in Sydney, spin friendly, sure. But I felt that Harmer was actually a lot 
more effective than Maharaj was. And it's interesting when you think about it, it makes sense with so many left-handers in Australia's top order, mm. why they didn't go to a, an off-spinner or turning away from the left-hander. Should we talk about the South Africans, really? Because Maharaj was really disappointing in this series. And I think, generally speaking, as disappointing as the batters have been for South Africa, and we'll, we'll get on to their, their batting and their, their merry-go-round at number three, the South African bowlers have been really disappointing this summer, by and large. I think... Norkia was fantastic. He was he was the same as Wagner, the same as Mark Wood. Players that have really succeeded in Australia from visiting teams have got a bit of ticker Wagner. about them. Wagner, I mean, did I not mention oh, Wagner? I did, thought I did, did mention yeah. Wagner. Um, they've got a bit of ticker about them, and and Norkia really showed that. He he charged in. He was not afraid to be at the Australians. I thought he was the pick of their bowlers, but Ngidi, Rabada, Kishif Maharaj in particular. Were, were below their best against Australia. And Australia were very good. They batted very, very well. Um, but other than Rabada's, what, four for ten or whatever it was in that low chase in the in the first test, I think it was, whichever one it was, the, the one where we had to chase 30 and we, we lost seven wickets doing it. Um, <laughs> apart St- from... Stats. Uh, stats uh, are irrelevant. Yeah, a- accuracy. Uh, 2023 is not the year of the statistic for Bourne. It's the year of the of the off-the-cuff remark. Um, other than other than that, he was below his best. Ngidi was below his best. Maharaj was definitely below his best. So, I mean, the South African media have been disappointed with their batting, but their bowling was equally equally below par. Um, and I really liked what Simon Harmer brought to the table. He was he was damaging. He challenged both edges of the bat. Um, he looks like a likely prospect too. Can score runs. I can see both Binksy and Raj dying to get to the mic as well. But I, can I expand that question? In terms, when you're thinking about your answers, and to say, what is actually the formula for sides going to Australia to actually have some success? Because I think we've looked at quite a few sides now, and on paper thought, like, okay, these sides could challenge Australia. They've got some of the elements that, you know, on paper we think, okay, match up the players. They're not. It's not a drastic dis- destruction that that some of these series have turned out to be. South Africa, you know, perhaps if a while ago we thought that they were a building test side. Their batting has kind of proved that that maybe isn't the case. New Zealand, as well, is another example. We thought we were on top of our game when we went over there, got absolutely destroyed. But then you've seen India go over there and win. What what is is, is there a formula or or something that you can see that you can actually beat this Australian side at home because. At times, they feel absolutely unbeatable in their their own conditions, in the same way that India are in their conditions. Look, I'll answer it in a, in a, in a slightly different way. In, in what I think, potentially, a side going there in the future is going to do, and and I think you've got to score your runs more quickly. Um, if I look at the strike rates of the South African batsmen, notwithstanding the fact that they got pantsed in the series, there's no doubt about that. And that Australian new ball attack is quality, but when you let them bowl at you then you are eventually, unless your technique is extremely good, you are going to nick off at some point. Um, and, you know, we saw the likes of Algar, I think Avea, you know, they look solid for periods and then they glove one down the leg side or or nicked off. You've, I think you've got to score your runs at, you know, 60 or 70 runs per 100 balls as a minimum so that you can put something like a score on the board. And then that Australian batting lineup has got some frailty if you can put them under pressure. Um, and I think too many teams, in, and England have done this in the past, and obviously I talk about that because it's the, probably the, the team I've watched play the most in Australia, clearly, is that you know when you're timid against Australia, in Australia, they absolutely 
put the foot on the throat and they don't, they don't let that foot off the throat. So I think you've got to go there and be really, really aggressive. And I think when it comes to Lyon, you've got to put him under pressure. Um, you've, you've got to get after him early so that he cannot bowl one end and rotate and go for three and over and allow the quicks to only have to bowl, you know, two spells in a day. So that, that, that for me is the blueprint. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, tr- tr- try and roll David Warner up. <laughs> So, to win in Australia, I think that you need to keep you need to keep your bowlers out of the field as much as possible. What we've seen with these tours where where, where people are going, uh, sorry, the away teams are coming to Australia, they're bowling 140, 130 overs back to back to back, and then yeah. and then only facing fifty overs with the bat. Uh, that that that's the main key with it, with our with the bowlers. I think that. The wicket taking length in Australia is a lot different to what it is around the world. Mm. It's actually that short of a length past the sort of belly button, sternum kind of area, nicking it to the slips. You see Cummins, you see Stark, you see Hazelwood bowling that sort of length, that really hard length uh, and, and getting it through. And finally, where South Africa fell over is... Their number three and four are just not number three and four test batsmen. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> they, Russie van der Dussen is one of... The, South Africa's best batsman. He should be batting at five in red ball cricket. He should not have been asked to bat at three. They've got Peterson, I think. Oh, sorry, yeah. who, who's the... He didn't come on this tour and didn't come to New Zealand either. The Keegan Peterson. Peterson. Keegan Peterson, yes. Uh, and Timba Bavuma is not, not a number four in test cricket these days. He needs to either drop down the order or drop out of the team altogether. He's averaging about 32, I think, in his career. It's actually uh, not that bad for that lineup. But, but and, that's, and there, therein lies the problem, that's right? The, that's the problem. the problem. But the the... I've lost my train of thought. Go, Baldy. You, you, you've actually all hit the, hit the nail on the head. For me, where's the niggle? India came to Australia and got in Australia's face. And Virat Kohli led that team superbly, not from an on-field captaincy perspective, because Ajinki Rahane did a great job from the captaincy point of view. But he took on the responsibility of getting in the Australian's face and saying in no uncertain terms that we're not afraid of you and we're coming at you. And we are as good, if not better than you, and I'm going to be in your face this entire time. You mentioned it, Binksy. Get in the face of David Warner. Don't let him be aggressive like he was in his 200 innings, right? Don't let him get into the contest. And if you're going to go at him, you've got to go at him for a long period of time because he will get up for that contest. You've got to make sure that you stand up for for that contest. There's not enough of that from visiting teams coming to Australia. You see it from one or two players in the team, but it really takes in the field 10 or even 11 people really having aggressive, aggressive, positive body language to get in the faces of the Australians. And I don't mean, I don't mean descending to the level of sledging and, and, you know, inane verbal that means nothing. I mean, being genuinely positive in your body language. There's, we there's saw a time it, and place for a name chat. Exactly. Um, and it's mostly just listen to 50 minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, but you know what I mean? There needs to be yeah. aggression. That's why Nokia was successful. That's why Mark Wood was successful. That's why Neil why Wagner was, was successful. You, I mean, you, the way you were talking about exactly. the, the speed of which they're batting and putting pressure on the bowlers. A hundred percent. And, um, and uh, Ravindra Jadeja was, was the same. Scored his runs quickly. So you've either got to score your runs very, very quickly or you've got to be absolutely perfect in your decision-making and your judgment. And that's why Williamson and Ross Taylor have been successful because they were – Limited, not limited in their stroke play, but they limited their shot selection so that they didn't fish outside off stump. Same as Manus does. He just waits and waits and waits and waits and waits and gets a bad ball and puts it away. And eventually he'll get five bad balls in a row because the bowlers are tired because they've been out there for seven but days. South Africa actually almost cracked it. Like if uh, Justin Langer, he talks about times in his career where Ricky Ponting has come up to him and said, 
I need you and Hados to bat the first two hours. Mm. And then we're away. In that Boxing Day test, they actually almost got to lunch two down, and then they lost two wickets yeah. in that last ten minutes, mm-hmm. and it was Alga as well, Alga and Bavuma, I think. But if they had gone to that sixty for two, they could they would score four hundred. You know what I mean? Yep. After after lunch, it was flattened out, and uh, your man Carl Verona was always in the runs. He's going to average forty by the time he finishes career. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, I think that they almost cracked it in that second Boxing Day test, and it might have changed some things for them, but. Unfortunately, uh, just not good enough this time round. Well, guys, 52 minutes in, two series covered. Let's time box this and try and talk a, a little bit of Big Bash and Super Smash in the next 10 minutes or so. Let's start in the same vein. Let's start in Australia. So Sydney Sixers riding high at the top of the Big Bash League at the moment. Scorchers, the Melbourne Stars really look to be out of it down the bottom with your uh, Brisbane Heat as well. Um, board it. Anything we want to really pick out from the, the Big Bash? The big news in the Big Bash is next year's Big Bash is going to a much shorter version. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, Fantastic. I uh, Look, the, the interesting thing about the Big Bash at the moment is that the second half of the tournament is going to be completely different from the first because all of the import players that were available for the first half, mm. other than I think Zach Crawley and maybe one or two others, are all going to all sorts of other different leagues. Yeah, the South and, Africa one. And all of the test players are coming back into the seams for the second half of the Big Bash. So Warner and Smith and Labuschagne and Kawaja and most importantly for Adelaide, Head and Carey are coming back into their domestic and teams. Awesome time to be in the shirt printing business. Exactly. <laughs> so you're going to get plenty more shirts printed. Um, but the point being that the, the form up until now is not necessarily going to be the form going forward. So five of the eight franchises will welcome back test players and almost all of them will lose one, if not two, import players. So I really like Adelaide going forward. They're only four and four, but they're going to get back head at the top of the order and they're going to get back Alex Carey. And all of a sudden that looks like a really, really, really good cricket side. Perth are always going to be strong. It remains to be seen what the two Sydney teams will come up with. Um, I'm not sure that the Heat can go on a run. They went on a run three or four years ago and, and got themselves to the final. I think won it from pretty much fifth, I think. They got to the final final five the spot. Dominator or the yeah, eliminator. one of those eighters. Um, and then sort of baconated their way back up the, to the, the alligator. Top. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's going to be an interesting second half of the tournament. I mean, it goes for four or five months now, the Big Bash. So <laughs> yeah. there's plenty of viewing to come. Yeah. So the final is after the, the World Cup, isn't it? I think, mm, I think that we break for the World Cup final and then come back. <laughs> yeah. no, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, Colin Munro is actually one of the guys that I, I've been speaking to you you guys about. I actually think that from a, from a you know, Black Caps point of view, I actually think he's still good enough to be one of our top six batsmen in the country. I think he makes our 2020 sides personally. Mm. Um, he's done. He's played a very, very varied role for the Scorch, uh, not the Scorchers, the Heat, Heat so far. Um, but when they when they put him up the order, he's got like he got like 30 or 14 balls or something mm. the, the other week. But I think he's still good enough to be in our our top six batters as a, at a Black Caps level. And the other fella um, who I was watching a lot was Patrick Dooley. Have you watched him? Oh yes, yeah. Can we talk about Patrick Dooley for a so second? So he's a left arm spinner from from Hobart, and he's got a bit of a strange action. He's got the double windmill going on, and the reason I think you'll like him is that he actually he loves a celebration. No and one can see who you pointed to, but that was me. Oh, sorry, Stu. Sorry, we're not on the not on TV yet. Um, <laughs> but he also loves a celebration. I've got here. He's somewhere between. Imran Tahir and oh, Dale good. Stain. Oh, I like it. So he loves a celebration and he's actually a really good bowler. I think he's How close does top? he get to the boundary when he runs off? Oh, he doesn't run off, but he definitely gets his, <laughs> gets his chainsaw out. Um, he, he, no, he, he's, I think he's the best bowler so far. I think he's got the best 
uh, average in the in the tournament so far. But he's, he's been really good. Interesting. He, he grips the ball, ostensibly a finger spinner, but grips the ball second and third finger mm. um, and, and really shows you his grip. So he holds his grip for about five or six seconds and really looks at it as if it's kind of, you know, a foreign thing to him. And then he gives it the then he gives it the Johnny Wilkinson. Okay. He gives it into the crouch. Ready to keep the ready to keep the field goal. I don't think they can hear yeah, you. Yeah, they can't. You moved away from your microphone. You're crouching so much. I've, I've crouched so far. Could I say so it's a good job we're not recording this on video because no one wants to watch you <laughs> crouching, crouching down in your skinny jeans, border. <laughs> I've got the legs for the crouch. Um, and then he gives it the fast semaphores on the way in and then the double windmill. It's, a, it's an incredible action, uh, one that which my wife was very entertained watching uh, during the Big Bash um, because he, she said it looked like an octopus on steroids. <laughs> but you just, you just um, don't have time to get no, used to it as a batsman no, in 2020 cricket. No, and he, and he can make it go both ways out of the hand, which is really interesting. I watched him bowl one that looked like a finger spinner that went back into the into the right-hander. So it was very, very interesting. Uh, I really like him. I think he could be could be a good player. Well, the guy I've got my eye on is, is Henry Thornton because he actually has got an impressive statistic in that only Chimindavas has got more names than him. Look at this. Henry, <laughs> Henry Thomas, Raphael, James, York, Thornton. There you go. There so you he's go. at the top of the wickets at the moment. Let's move on to the Super Smash. So um, Lippy and I have uh, had the pleasure of watching a couple of games at the uh, Canards Super Hire, which <laughs> to everyone else would be the Eden Park Outer Oval. Um, seen a couple of Aces games um, there, but that tournament um, reaching the business end as well. Lippy, any major shout outs that you want to sort of look at from a emerging New Zealand domestic player perspective? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I guess we're t- we've time boxed this. I've, I know I've prepared thoughts on the New Zealand Pakistan and taken up a lot of, of time. So we'll try and keep it brief. But I mean, we've, we've got Wellington kind of added again, Firebirds top of the table and, and the blaze. I mean, the blaze just roll on as normal every year. Players are out. Doesn't seem to matter. They just keep charging on. And although, you know, magicians giving them a little bit of a run for their money at the moment. Amy Satterthwaite, you know, showing her class back at that level. I do wonder if there's any thought at, at the higher level, you know, can we kind of convince her to come on uh, in our World Cup squad for, for the T20 World Cup that's in February? I, I think it's unlikely. But uh, look, I mean, you know, she she would certainly not be out of place in that tournament. But I, I, I kind of want to just highlight a couple of players uh, on the men's side of things that I think will be really pushing for, for higher honours. Like you say, we've, we've got a summer where, as we talked about before, New Zealand has these tours. Sri Lanka comes here at the end of the end of our home summer. And then we go to Pakistan for making making up all the uh, white ball stuff that we, we missed out on in 2021 or 2022, whenever that was, the aborted tour. So I really think that's going to open up a lot of opportunities. We're going to see players the likes of... It, it will kind of be a mix of what happened when we went to Bangladesh, that series where uh, everyone was away at the IPL, players were unavailable. So it essentially was half and half, kind of half the players that don't go to the IPL and then the other half are New Zealand A players essentially. So I think a couple of players to, to look out for. Um, I mean, actually probably to, first I should point out Dean Foxcroft just absolutely mm. performing at an extremely high level. and. And still, you know, anyone who listened to the the chat we had with we had with him earlier in the in the summer knows that he's still probably a few years away from from being eligible for New Zealand, but fully has the desire to put in that time and, and play for New Zealand. Which is, you know, we talked about succession plans. I think he's someone that's you know hopefully going to follow in a Devon Conway kind of a style, and that he's going to 
you know, as I say, hopefully stack up a lot of first-class runs, a lot of white ball runs for for, New, for, for for Otago and then come into the New Zealand side kind of primed and ready to go if, if all things go to plan. But I think the, the two names I, I want to mention, number one, uh, Josh Clarkson. I think he's, you know, he just smashes it. Smashes Raj is over there just, you know, winding up. He can just hit the ball miles. And, and you know, T20, what are we looking for at the moment? You're looking for, for players that can hit the ball out of the park. You're looking for finishes. You know, he his and he's kind of been doing it for, you know, he's, he's having a great season this year, but he's been doing it for a while. You know, you, you look at his career average is, is almost 30, which is actually very good in T20 cricket. And his strike rate is at, at 150 plus. And so that's across 70 odd games now. So he's been doing it for a while. I think what counts against him slightly is that um, people like Mitchell and, and Jimmy Neesham haven't been picked up in the IPL, so potentially they're still going to be in that New Zealand side for, for all of those games. But, yeah, I would be very surprised if Clarkson's not somewhere in the mix on those those tours. And the other person is Chad Bowes because, you know, he's, he's again, had a little taste for New Zealand, New Zealand A, uh, you know, went to, went to India and, you know, kind of just continuing on his form from the last couple of seasons – Consistent, you know, starting to put consistent runs together was looking very good. And in, uh, in the game we went to on Sunday, hit a couple of nice boundaries. And then, uh, you know, rain is, you know, I'm sure everyone listening around New Zealand knows the the terrible weather we've had and disruptions to to cricket that we've had over the the past couple of weeks here. But yeah, I think considering that Finn Allen, uh, Devon Conway, uh, Kane Williamson, that all those players are going to be away during that world world, you know, during the IPL. Those tours, they're going to be looking for openers, looking for openers to sort of fill that Finn Allen role that he's been playing for us. I think Chad Bowes is is kind of in line for that. And, yeah, like I say, I think those two are, are players that I think will almost definitely be in those squads. I think, as I mentioned earlier, brilliant to see Rutchin start to... I, I, I think the most exciting part about Rutchin's performances in domestic cricket this summer have been the way I think he's bowling. Because I think we've known that, you know, in time he's going to be a very effective batter. It looks like his bowling is actually developing as well and that he's being used as more of a, you know, regular bowler. He's not just a part-timer anymore. It seems like he's going to be a real contributor in that area. And if he can, look, if he can become a, a genuine all-rounder, it's a, a massive game-changer for us at sort of all, all formats. And um, the other sneaky one I, I'm keeping my eye on is Tim Pringle. Because, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, we saw that he can play at that next level, playing for, for the Netherlands. He's got the, the physical tools and being, you know, a very tall bowler. You know, he can spin the ball. He's sort of usurped a little bit. Um, Joe Walker, who's been, had a couple of good years for, for ND, went over to ND, you know, went over to New Zealand A Tour. Uh, and But, you know, Tim Pringle's kind of getting the limelight above him for, for ND a little bit now. So, yeah, fascinating to see how much longer, I suppose, Pringle stays in the the. Netherlands environment or we start to try and look and give him opportunities in, in New Zealand so yeah that's that's about it from the, the Super Smash the, the last thing I did want to just shout out before Binksy wraps me up is uh, just a shout out to the New Zealand 19 women's side who that tournament's about to start in a few days and um, yeah a few white ferns in that side Georgia Plimmer Izzy Gaze Fran Jonas who's had a, a really impressive last six months so yeah it'd be, be nice to see how they go and, and hopefully go really well also, if anybody wants to YouTube Shakib Al Hassan at it again in the BPL, oh, yelling at umpires, it was a really definitely a no ball, and he didn't get called. But I don't know what it is about that tournament and Shakib. He likes to fire <laughs> up in that tournament, so go have a look. It's quite entertaining. 
Well, an hour and three in, guys. We didn't even talk about Zampa's attempted mancad. If you have made it... And, and I tell you what, we didn't talk about... Uh, we, we didn't get the prepared notes on David Warner sitting down at drinks. I tell you what, I, I got a barrage of text messages <laughs> when well, that was happening from, what, from just, a certain Michael Baldwin. We might have to just set up a Patreon for that. <laughs> I have some prepared remarks that I shall keep for another time. Well, boys, an hour and three in. If you've made it this far, listener, thank you very much for using most of your data allowance for the period on our little podcast. Uh, we appreciate it muchly. Plenty more cricket going on um, at the moment. The one-day series, of course, has kicked off in Pakistan. Um, we're not too far away from that England's arrival for test matches at the Mount um, and the Basin. So do stay tuned to the Top Order podcast. We've got plenty more cricketing content coming if this New Zealand summer ever bloody starts. Thanks for listening. Good night.